You can be seated. And kids, before, hang on, before you go to your class, so hang on right there. I actually am going to need your help. So before you go, I'm going to need your help on something. Because as some of you know, at the Bailey House, we've been working a lot the last several months on our repertoire of jokes. So we're thinking about taking this show on the road. Cynthia can sing, and then me and Maddie and Annabelle will tell jokes. So I got a couple I want. We're going to tell you, and then you tell me if this is road worthy. Okay? All right. So our first joke. Why should you never give a balloon to Elsa? Yes, <laughs> she'll let it go. All right, good. So is that a winner? All right, that's a winner. We'll take that one on the way. All right, why was Cinderella bad at soccer? She always ran away from the ball. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. Okay, here's the next one. All right, why did Beethoven get rid of all his chickens because they kept always talking about Bach, Bach, Bach. You get it? You get it? There's they, uh, Bach is another composer and he was jealous. Uh, okay. All right. Mm. All right. All right. There are three signs of old aging. The first is that you forget things. And the second is, um, <laughs> you get it, kids? The, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe. Okay, how about this one? Well, uh, what type of shoes do spies wear? Sneakers. Sneakers. Yes, they wear sneakers. Okay, so um, we're telling jokes, and the reason why is you think about it, there's actually a lot of things you have to know if you're going to get the joke. So if you're going to get like the joke about Elsa, if that's going to be funny, then you have to know things about the story and the background and then her song if you're going to get it. And one of the things we want for you is we want for you to get the gospel, for you to know it and feel it. And when you hear it, for it to make your heart sing and your soul to laugh. But in order for you to get the gospel, there's actually a lot of things that you have to know. So one of the reasons each week we're talking about people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, and you think, oh, why do we need to know about these people? Because all of that's part of the background story you need to know if you're going to get the gospel. So kids, you're going to go into your class. So through fifth grade, uh, we'll be having their class. Middle school kids, You'll be in here, but everybody up to fifth grade will be going to your class. And as they head out, for those of us staying in, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And so we're going through the gospel of Matthew, and Matthew's gospel is a training manual for us. It's a discipleship training manual. It's a theological training manual. It's given us a, a training manual on how to live well, how to follow Jesus well. And one of the brilliant things that Matthew is doing with his training manual is he's teaching. Every chapter is meant to teach us something, but he does it in such a beautiful way. He'll tell stories, uh, indirect discourse, he'll have direct discourse where he tells us things clearly. Chapter 1 is teaching us about who God is, telling us about the Trinity. And then chapter 2 is all about revelation, 
how we can know him. And what we saw last week is, is there's two main types of revelation, natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation, we learn about him from the world. Special revelation, we learn about him from his word. And then that theme is going to continue in chapter 2. And what I want to give you this morning are three metaphors to understand how the Bible works. And then we're going to apply those metaphors and look, and we'll look at three messages in the second half of, of Matthew. So the three metaphors I want you to think about is how does the Bible work uh, are music, x-rays, and jokes. So the Bible's like music, the Bible's like x-rays, the Bible's like jokes. So we'll see, we'll see if we can uh, get there. So those are our three metaphors. And actually one of the key lines, you'll hear this as we read the passage in a few minutes. One of the key lines in chapter 2 is this repeated refrain that we'll see in verse 15, verse 17, and verse 23, where he says, This was to fulfill what had been spoken. So this was to fulfill what had been spoken. Matthew is going to tell us 10 times in his gospel. He tells you this happened to fulfill what had been spoken. And so we're going to look, how does that work? How does the Old Testament, New Testament, how do they fit together? How does what is happening in Jesus's life fulfill what has been spoken in the Old Testament uh, in the past? So let's kind of work on those three metaphors to kind of put them in place. And then we'll unpack them. All right. So our first metaphor is that scripture is like like music and you have to learn to hear it. It's like music. And so with every scripture passage there, you're going to be hearing a variation on a tune that's been played before. So it's actually very similar. So we have a couple clips just to kind of illustrate uh, what I'm talking about. So hang on. Um, in 1963, so this song burst on the American rock and roll scene and became an instant national hit. So Eli, kick our first clip. And you can sing along if you know it, but I don't know if there'll be any music. If everybody had a nose across the USA, then everybody'd be served like California. You'd see them wearing their baggies, wear Archie sandals too, a bushy, bushy blonde all right, so you know it, you recognize it. All right, so 1963, that song it was a hit, and everybody was thrilled about this song except Chuck Berry. Now, do you know why Chuck Berry wasn't as thrilled about the song? Because he had released a song in 1958 that, sound, that sounded awfully similar. So see if you can hear the similarities. They're really rocking in Boston and Pittsburgh, PA, deep in the heart of Texas and around the Frisco Bay, all over St. Louis. Now they sound awfully similar, don't they? And so Chuck Bear was not excited. That was one of the first um, copyright infringement legal cases that shook the, the rock and roll world. And it was kind of interesting, the dynamic, because Brian Wilson, who wrote the, the Beach Boys song, uh, said that he actually intended his song to be a tribute to honor Chuck Berry. <laughs> and Chuck's people said, well, if you want to honor him, then... 
pay him <laughs> for it. <laughs> and actually, uh, Brian Willett, he said, he said, well, I don't understand because like, um, he said, all rock and roll music is is variations on the same three chords. So we're, uh, all of it is copying. And so that was one of the first. And then this is actually has been played out uh, kind of all throughout musical history. Here's another example that was a little more obvious. So to, to play this next clip and see if you can guess what song this is. I wait, don't, don't guess too soon. Right, anybody want to guess what song that is? Yes, David Bowie, 1981, Under Pressure. And then this song came out in 1989. Mm. Let's kick it. <laughs> they sound awfully similar. In the legal case for that, uh, Vanilla Ice's defense for himself was that he was actually not copying that melody because they added a bass drop in it. So it was completely different. And um, he did not win the court case, by the way. <laughs> but it's interesting. So the way the, the, in essence, the way rock and roll kind of works is when you hear those songs, you instantly think, hmm, I've heard that song before. I've heard that tune before. And that's actually how scripture is um, without all the copyright violations. <laughs> See, the way scripture works is it starts playing these melodies that then are, that run through the whole book. And you're, you're, you, what you have to learn is how to hear the melody, hear the tune. Say, wait a second. We've heard a tune like that before. Then how is it similar? And then how is it different? So scripture in one sense, maybe a different musical analogy, is that scripture is like this uh, incredible 2,000-year uh, symphony that starts these musical notes, these tunes, these melodies. And then all throughout history, they're running. And then there's different variations on the different uh, tunes. But one of the things you have to key, uh, key in on if you're going to learn to read it well is to learn what tune's being played, in essence, in the background. Maybe to change the image just a little bit. Maybe there's every um, passage has certain background music, and you have to learn to key in on it. Actually, one of the amazing things that Matthew is doing is he's putting each section of his gospel with the background music of major movements in Israel's history. So chapters 1 through 7, the major background music is, is the Exodus, or from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And that's the background music that's going to be played through the whole part. And then when Jesus comes off the mountain and the Sermon on the Mountain starts to go out into Israel, the background music is Joshua and the conquest leading up to the, the establishment of the kingdom with King David. And then that's the background music. Then he starts to build his disciples and build his church, and the background music is Solomon and the United Kingdom building the, building the temple. And then he starts to form this, this group of disciples and the background music is the prophets. So the whole scripture has this background music and you have to learn to tune into it. So music. All right, the next image, the next metaphor uh, is the metaphor of, I think, photo negatives or x-rays. All right, so bring up, uh, Graham, bring up this first picture. See if you can see that. Is, it, is there a picture up there? 
Oh, I can't see it. It's a negative. It's a dark. I can't see it. Uh, is that what you Can you see the negative of the photo? Okay, so for kids, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about something from the dark ages. <laughs> Literally the dark age. So this might be a shock to you, but if you want to have a picture, like there was a time when you couldn't hold your phone, like instantly snap it, see the image, and then adjust in real time. I mean, now you can just snap a photo and you can get a slow-mo selfie that you then put a cartoon unicorn on your head. I mean, there was a time when people couldn't do such things. And what you used to have to do if you wanted to, de to develop a picture, you had to have like this thing called film, and you had to take the picture, and then it would get impressed on this uh, type of semi-transparent paper. Actually, reading this week about how film was developed, it was incredibly complex and kind of amazing. It's a shame, I guess, you can't do these kind of things anymore. And then what you'd have to do is you'd have these negatives, and with the negatives, you can kind of see the contours, and you can get a general shape of the picture, but it doesn't come in all of its full color clarity. And this actually is a good image of what the Old Testament's like, because in the Old Testament, you get the general shape and the contours of all these beautiful pictures, but it's not until we get the exposure, the light of the resurrection, that they then become beautiful technicolor images where we can see it in all of its clarity and its beauty. And if you're going to learn to read it, you have to actually learn. It's almost like learning to read um, x-rays. So pull up this next picture. All right. So does, uh, now we can all kind of look and say, all right, what is that? That's actually a famous x-ray. And you, you can actually see, does, does anybody know whose chest that is an x-ray of? Yeah, you can, can you see it or did you know? So this actually is a famous t case study. And so uh, the, uh, people, uh, uh, people have been trained to read x-rays and the radiographs. It's like incredibly complicated. So most untrained eyes just look at x-rays and like, all right, what is that? It just looks like mashed potatoes lumped together. And say, well, no, actually, it's all of these things. This actually, so someone who's been trained to read x-rays can not only tell you what this is, they could tell you the story. They could tell you exactly where the point in, the rib cage where the bullet that was intended to assassinate the president entered, where it lodged, and all of these things. They can uh, tell you a whole story just from this image. And the way you learn to read x-rays, the only way you really can learn is you have to apprentice yourself to a master who can slowly teach you how to decipher the patterns that you're seeing in the pictures. And that's a good image of how we learn and develop the skills to read the Old Testament. We have to learn to be able to decipher the patterns that we're seeing. And one of the things Matthew is, what he is trying to do is to help you teach you how to learn to read the pictures. So scriptures like music, scriptures also like an x-ray. You have to learn how to read the patterns and the third thing is scripture is like a joke. And I don't mean that in any disrespect, so don't hear that disrespectfully. But as I was, you know, already used the kids to make this point an illustration. You know, if you think about the kind of the knowledge you need in order to get a joke is pretty complicated, actually. So even if I just start out like and say, all right, uh, a priest, a rabbi, and a preacher walk into a bar. See, all of a sudden, you actually know there's a whole tradition of jokes that start out this way. Or if I kind of say, you know, three guys walked into a bar and the fourth one ducked. 
Huh? You already know there's this whole tradition and he's actually playing on the tradition. We're kind of playing with the words. There's actually a whole host of things you have to know just so you can get it. But the, the crazy thing, I was about to say the funny thing about jokes is that you can't really explain it. Like once you start having to explain it, it's, it, it's gone. Either you get it or you don't. Either you see it or, or you don't. And in many ways... The Bible can be like that. Like you, you hear the gospel and it, it can either just land on you or it won't. But there's actually all types of things in the background that you need if you're going to be able to make sense of it. And so these three images, you know, you have, it's like music, you got to hear it. It's like an x-ray, you have to learn to see it. But then it's like a joke, you just have to get it. And those three movements can be really helpful as we think about how to read scripture and put it together. So let's quickly look at this passage and think, all right, how can we hear it, see it, and get it in these three, in this passage? Because what Matthew's going to do in chapter 2, verse 13 through 23, he's going to give us three little snapshots that happened in the life of Jesus that are echoes of Old Testament stories. And then he wants us to know, do, do you hear it? Do you hear the tune? Do you see the picture? And then do you get the power? Hear it, see it, get it. So let's look at the first one in verse 13. Now when they had departed, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and he departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. So the first kind of thing he wants us to hear, see, and get is to see that God himself, Jesus himself, is on the run. He's a refugee. He has to flee from his home. He has to run for his life. He says, all right, first, do you hear it? The quotation comes from Hosea chapter 11. That's the, the quotation. But even what Hosea is doing in chapter 11 is he's doing a variation on a tune that's been going ever since the Exodus. So ever since the book of the Exodus, there's been this tune. And what it's referencing is he's saying uh, that out of Egypt, I have called my son. And the tune is to remember that the Exodus was all about God coming to Pharaoh and demanding to Pharaoh that uh, Israel is my firstborn son. And you have them enslaved and in captivity. And I am coming as their kinsman redeemer to redeem them out of your hand. Let them go. You either let them go willfully and joyfully, or I will take them from you. But I am coming to redeem my, my son. And so that's part of the music we're supposed to hear. And in one sense, Exodus is one of the most important tunes we have to learn to hear because it's in the background or lays the foundation for so many of the songs in the New Testament. You know, like if you're going to learn how to play guitar and learn how to, you want to be a rocker, you know, I don't know what song you should start with. I don't know, maybe start with like Stairway to Heaven or something. I don't know what the foundational song is to begin with. But the Exodus is one of the foundational songs if we're going to learn to hear the music of Scripture. And so here, what we're supposed to hear is that song of the Exodus. But then what he wants to see is to not only see the reality of the Exodus, the great liberation, the ransom, the deliverance, chains being broken, sons being delivered and brought into freedom. Um, one of the things he wants us to see is see his own son as a refugee who has to flee, who has to run for his life. You know, it's very interesting that God actually commands Joseph to run. 
run away. And part of just being wise, there's certain seasons where it's right to stand and fight, and there's certain seasons and situations where it's right to run. And wisdom is being able to tell the difference. And Joseph uh, is called to flee. But then how do we know, what does it mean to actually get it? How we start to get that is when we begin to recognize and see all the different ways that either we and the people around us live as refugees. They live on the run. They live in a place that's not their home. And so you can be a literal refugee where you're having to flee. That's exactly how Jesus and his family uh, was here. And it's worth thinking about, like, who, who gave them shelter when they fled to Egypt? Who brought them in? Who gave them cold water and fresh food? Who brought them in? Um, and then think about just all the different ways in your own life. Think about all the different ways that you can feel like an outsider. You can feel that I don't belong here. People can feel that way when they have their midlife crisis because they feel like, I feel like an outsider to my own life. How did I wind up here? You can feel that way when you feel you're forced into things that you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. You can feel there's uh, a deep sense of feeling out of place. And we all can see it in children. We know one of the, the things that can cause every mama bear in the house, her blood to boils when you see other kids like picking on even other kids or your kids, making them feel ashamed, feel worthless, feel like they're outsiders. And it can generate uh, such energy. Why? Because you want to protect people from feeling that way. And so how do you know you're really getting the gospel? It's when you begin to develop eyes and start to ask who is feeling like an outsider around here? How can I help them? One of the ways you can know, or you can find hope and comfort in the fact that uh, one of the things that Matthew is trying to do is show you that Jesus has walked through every stage and every situation of not just the life of Israel, but what we all can experience. So if you feel like an outsider, if you feel like there's, you have no home, you can have one that you can connect to, that you can know. He knows what it's like. And so you're aware of these things. That's how we know we're beginning to get it. Not just see it, not just hear it, but begin to get it. Look at the second, uh, second section of 16 through 18. And this is the second message. First we see God on the run, but then we see God is attacked. Look in 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then this might be one of the more staggering lines in the whole Bible. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there were no more. And so the first thing he wants you to hear, he wants you to hear the prophecy from Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. And so we hear that scriptural word, and it's a reference to Herod. And one of the things about Herod, uh, you know, his uh, beastly character is notorious. And it's fascinating because from one angle, he was one of Israel's greatest political leaders from a standpoint of... Uh, 
economic prosperity, from a standpoint of building uh, kind of a worldly kingdom. But there's no doubt he was also one of the most tyrannical, beastly humans that they ever uh, had to deal with. He killed his wife. He killed two of his sons. Um, I mean, his kind of list of atrocities is pretty staggering. And then, but in the context, what he wants to hear is he wants to hear the, the quotation is from Jeremiah 31 and it's Rachel weeping for her children. And then the voice is heard in Rama. Where is that? Rama was the location for the first deportation to Babylon in the first exile. So Rama was the location where they would, uh, the Babylonian uh, army would stage all of the Israelites who were then going to be um, deported and taken away from their home. So it's very similar to like in uh, Nazi Germany, you would have certain train stations that uh, Jewish families know if they got a summons to those that train station. They would never see their family again. That's the kind of location at this place of deep lamentation, crying out. But then notice whose voice is it? It's Rachel's. Why Rachel? Rachel's the matriarch, Jacob's wife. She's the mother of Israel, of the Israelites. Remember Rachel, she had two children. She had uh, Joseph and Benjamin. And then what happened when Rachel gave birth to Benjamin? She died. She died in childbearing. So Rachel is actually a model of what it means to say, my life for yours. I will give my life so you can have yours. And then Herod is doing the exact opposite. Herod is a model of the dynamic of I will sacrifice you for me. I demand that you give your life for mine. And one of the things he wants us to hear and then see is, do you see how that dynamic is the fundamental operating system of the world? I demand you sacrifice for me. And it's the exact opposite of the gospel. In one sense, from Herod, this is just survival of the fittest in its rawest form of political power. I demand you sacrifice for me. And then you think through all the different... You know, the age of dictators and despots, you know, they could sacrifice a whole nation on the altar of their own ambition. You're reminded of the, during the Napoleonic Wars when uh, different diplomatic negotiations with Napoleon and he had that famous kind of line. He says, you can't stop me. I can, I can spend 30,000 men a month. Because there's no way you can stop my ambition as such. I will sacrifice 30,000 men on the altar of my ambition every month. And that's the fundamental dynamic operating just in the world. You sacrifice for me. But here you see the exact opposite in Rachel. And what that actually is, is the exact opposite of the dynamic of the gospel. One of the underlying kind of themes of this chapter is who's the real king. You can see that in the very beginning. It repeats um, in chapter two, where they came to Herod the king. And then the wise man comes and said, we've seen the star of the king of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king? And so the real question is, what does it mean to be the true king? And Herod's kingship is driven by the dynamic that you sacrificed for me. And then in the gospel, Matthew's going to paint us an image of another king whose the dynamic of his reign is I will sacrifice for you. Not you give your life for me, but I will give my life for you. 
And then when we begin to see that, and we begin to get that, you know, it, changes, it changes everything. So what it means to, to get these things. You know, there's probably, there's all kinds of historical illustrations we could stop to use to illustrate that worldly dynamic of you sacrifice for me. But I think it'd probably just be worth just taking a few moments to think how deeply that's worked itself just into my own heart. Like, how am I tempted to sacrifice others on the altar of my own comfort, my own convenience, my own career, my own consumerism, my own ambition, my own opinions? How tempted am I to cause others to sacrifice for me? And it is sad how so often in that dynamic it's the children who are the victims, just like it is here in this chapter. You know, I find it so interesting as we move into a nonstop hyper-political time how two of the great political issues of our age are refugees and abortion, and both of them are dealt with right here. And you think, all right, well, what does it mean for the basic operating system of my heart to no longer be you for me, but now it's me for you? How do you get that? How do you get to that place? Probably one of my favorite stories to illustrate this. So some of you have heard this before, but several years ago, a church was kind of going through and kind of collecting different stories the way the gospel has transformed them. And I was thinking back on that campaign, and there was actually three stories that came to my mind to illustrate all three of these, these things. But I'll just choose one. Um, but one of the stories is that there was a, uh, a woman who shared her, her story, her testimony, and she was working at one of the big three networks uh, in New York, is it ABC, NBC, CBS. She was working on one of those big three networks. And uh, she said that she was utterly committed to charging up the corporate ladder and did not care who she had to step on to get there. And she was in a certain situation, there was some type of situation where she was going to take some significant ethical corners and do some things. She knew it was wrong, but it was a calculated risk. All right, if, if this pays off, I can get elevated. If it doesn't, I'll get fired and just, just start over. And uh, it didn't work out well. And uh, she kind of braced herself for the incredible fall. And then she went into her boss's office, kind of expecting to be fired, and he started to really kind of let her have it. And then he started shifting into how they were going to, what they were going to do together to kind of, in essence, clean up the mess. And she stopped him and said, wait, 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 I'm not, you're not firing me? He said, well, no, but here's what you're going to have to, bop, bop, bop. no, 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 I'm not being fired. No, you're not being fired. Well, why am I not? Do you want to be fired? Well, no. Why, why, why am I not being fired? And she just said, she couldn't let it go. And uh, she said, you have to tell me what, why do I still have a job? And he said, well, look, because I've been at this company a long time. I've, you know, in essence, got a lot of, I can absorb this kind of thing. You can't. I took the fall, but here's what we're going to do to, kind of make it right. And as he started saying, she stopped him again. She said, no, I can't hear that. She said, I, I have had many bosses who have taken credit for the things I have done. I've never had a boss who took the blame that I deserved. Why would you do that? Why? And he said, well, I just did. Why do you want to? I, I just... I just did. And she wouldn't let go. Why would you do such a thing? And finally says, look, I know, 
I, the reason why is because I'm a Christian. And I don't know what in your mind you think that means. And kind of gave some funny stereotypes. I don't know what you think that means. But what it means to be a Christian is that I have my life because someone took the blame that I deserved. And then he gave me the credit that he deserved. And so what he's done for me on this giant scale, I thought I could do for you on a small scale. And you know what she said? She said, where do you go to church? <laughs> and so what he said, that's someone who gets it. That's getting it at a deep level that you almost can't rationally explain but they just get it. And what would it like to get the gospel at that deep level in your own heart and soul? And don't you, I mean, wouldn't you like to have more people in your life who live that way? And you think, and, and as you think about it what, it, what it means to live out to really get the gospel is, is maybe it's not even to do that on such a grand scale, but maybe the real heroic nature of the Christian life is to do that in a small scale a hundred times a day. You know, think about what it would be like, you know, it's just this stage and season of parenting. I think, what does it mean when I know my kids are starting to really get it, get the gospel? Or even what does it mean in this stage for me to really get it? Maybe it's getting to a place where you don't say things like, why would I clean up that mess? I didn't make it. Why should I be the one to clean up that mess? I didn't make it. Well, because that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus came into your life to clean up the mess he didn't make. So get in the bathroom. <laughs> and so this is what it means to get to have it work deep down into your own soul. Or maybe, you know, think one of the most heroic things you can do. In essence, the, di the worldly dynamic is you sacrifice for me. The gospel dynamic is I will sacrifice for you. And then maybe in your life you think, yeah, that would be amazing. But that's what I, I feel like that's all I've been doing for the last 30 years. My life for yours constantly. My life for yours constantly giving it out. And I'm just tired. I'm tired of giving it out that way. Maybe you need to hear that Jesus not only knows, he sees, he celebrates. He says, look, that's my child walking in my ways, doing, following me. That's a, that's a heroic thing. Maybe that's even more heroic than kind of the grand gesture that might get headlines or make, uh, you know, get celebrated on social media. The 10,000 small ways you, you sacrifice for others that they never even recognize or see. Or maybe right now you're re recognizing that, man, I had somebody in my life who really did. They, they were not driven by the Herod dynamic. They were driven by a dynamic of I'll suffer so you don't have to. I will give my life and pour myself out in these multiple jobs so you can have opportunities and resources I never could have imagined. I will serve behind the scenes in hundreds of ways so that you can experience life. And maybe this morning as you're thinking about that, there's somebody who has done that for you and you need to just thank them. Tell them, looking back, as I've gotten older, I can see and I thank you for it. So that's the second thing. And the third, just quickly, is that God's laid low. Look in verse 19. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this actually is a little tricky one because there's not a specific text in the Old Testament that Matthew's referencing. What I think he's doing is he's actually cueing you in onto one of the major melodies that's running through the whole thing. And part of the, that melody is that um, it's a promise that God dwells and enters into the wilderness, It's in the darkness. It's in the wilderness. It's in the the out-of-the-way places that God often will encounter us, and he'll come to us. And part of it is is the melody of his deep humility, that he's going to go uh, enter into the places that seem... You remember what Nathaniel said when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth? Nazareth? Anything good come from Nazareth? That podunk Hickville town over there? Yeah, actually. Those are the type of places that Jesus loves to enter and dwell in. And that's one of the things, his humility, um, entering into those places. But then all throughout this, there's, there's this tune that you're kind of to be keying in on. It's like, hmm, I've heard, I've heard this song before of, of a Joseph who's driven by the murderous rage of his, his in essence, his brothers out to Egypt. I've heard a song of a Joseph being led by by dreams. I've heard a story about the tyrannical ruler in Egypt who's trying to kill the children and his plans are thwarted. You hear it. But then you see it. Jesus is going here to Galilee. And in chapter 4, he'll talk more. Matthew will tell us more about why that matters. But let's just think, how do you get it? Why does it matter? What does he want us to get? I think one of the things that he wants us to really to get is that times of obscurity are not punishment. When you feel like you're being ignored by the world, that's not punishment. The ordinary times are not times um, we're being punished. One of the things Jesus is going to go to a normal out of the way place and then spend the next 30 years just being raised, just going to work each day, doing his job, loving his family, loving his community, just doing the ordinary things that make life worth living. At this stage, there's no public promotion. There's no self uh, assertion. It's just ordinary life. And oftentimes we can struggle with this, especially at transition stages. So some of you have felt like the the call that I'm going to be a missionary and I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to spread the gospel. And then you get there and it's just filled with so much ordinariness. And then you, you feel discouraged. Like, is this what I signed up for? Yes. That's called life. And then you can feel it in other ways. Like you get, you work, go through school for all these years to train and to become this thing. And then you get in this thing and it's filled with paperwork all day. Like, is this what I took out $130,000 of student loans for? Well, yeah, it's kind of the ordinary preparation. Something you can feel this, like new mothers can feel it. We're thinking, is all my life just now going to be wiping noses and changing diapers? Well, yes. Caring for the weak and the helpless is a beautiful thing. What would you rather be doing with your life than laying it down?
down so another can live. And that's just the ordinariness of life. So how do we hear the gospel? We got to hear it. We got to see it. And then we got to get it. And once we begin to get it, it can make our soul really sing and our hearts really laugh. So let's pray that we'll experience all of those things. So Lord, we praise you for the gospel. We ask that you would help us to hear it, to see it, to get it, that it would land on our souls and our hearts with all of its beautiful force. And so I thank you for these three images that we've seen of your son, that he was a refugee. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him and he had to run. And so I pray for anyone in this room who they feel that they feel it tangibly where they feel that this is just not my home. I pray that you would comfort them with the thought that, you know, you've experienced, you've walked that path before. And I pray for all of us that you would give us eyes to see and give us a sensitivity and awareness. And Lord, I praise you for the image of what it means to be the true king, that the true king will not sacrifice others for their own good, but the true king will give his life so others, that, so others can find theirs. So we praise you for what your son did. Uh, he did that for us. And so now I ask that you help us. Give us the strength. Give us the courage. Give us the power to do that in a hundred small ways um, in our life. And I thank you. I thank you for all the people in our lives who in so many ways they've done that for us. And so often we didn't even know. I just wonder, even from a, just from a human perspective, the, the two-year-old Jesus had no idea the sacrifice and what Joseph was protecting him from. And I thank you for all of the people who have protected us from things we had no idea. And then, Lord, we thank you for the, the beauty in the ordinary. So I pray that you help if any of us are tempted to um, become discouraged at just the ordinariness of life. Help us to be able to see and to taste the glory in those moments. Know this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.